Hey, what's up, Resonate Church? It's good to see you. So happy to see you, all of you here in this room, also on our campus in Hayward. Hey, we're so glad that you're joining us. Our online family, wherever you are, joining us all around the world, in our country. Hey, welcome. So glad that you're part of what we're doing right now. Uh, I believe that God has a message for us. I believe that God wants to challenge us. And I want to start with a, a story that is just near and dear to me. It's about a boy named Chad, who was always so shy. He was, he, was, he was always kind of the outsider of his friends. And his mom was always concerned as she looked out her kitchen window and always saw the school bus come. Kids would roll out, laughing, holding each other, having a good time. But here's always, at the very end, Chad, walking alone. And this is why she was so weary when Chad came up to her and said, I want to make Valentine's cards for my classmates. Her heart sank, knowing that that kind of love would not be reciprocated, but she did it anyway. They went to the store, got glue and construction paper, and Chad spent three weeks making 35 Valentine's cards for all of his friends. That day, he was so excited, he forgot to eat breakfast, just ran out the door without saying goodbye to his mom, went into the bus, and there the mom was constantly thinking, this day when he returns home, I'm just going to have to comfort him. And so she thought, she longed, she made some cookies for him, prepared some milk, and here it was, the bus came. All the kids rolled out. There seemed to be even more festivity in there. After all, it was Valentine's Day. Everybody was having fun, and here's Chad walking behind all alone once again muttering something under his breath. He walks in. His mom immediately comforts him. Hi, Chad. How was your day? He's muttering something. He says, not one. Not one. And her heart sank. And he said, Mom, I didn't forget a single one. I didn't forget a single one. What would it look like for the church of God, of Jesus Christ, to be so relentless for the one that is in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods? What would it look like for us to not forget a one? And this is why we're in the sermon series called For the One. And For the One is derived from Luke 15, where Jesus puts three parables and stitches them together. And he says, and he asks a rhetorical question, he says, what among you, who among you would have 100 sheep and loses one, doesn't leave the 99 to go after that one. Now, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is really clear. His answer is everybody should leave the 99 to go after that one. Why? Because the one belongs to God. The one belongs to God. It actually belongs to him. And this is why it doesn't say um, lostness is just like a spiritual wandering. It's like lostness means you once had it in your possession and it's no longer with you. And so every person that is not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the triune God, who's not in church, is lost. It was once God. Now he wants him back, and he's asking us to go after him or her. But secondly, um, it's so rhetorical because he is precious to God or she is precious to God. And mind you, you know, once I lost a child, and I was really upset. Right after I found the child, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. Where were you? 
you know, and I just changed my voice, you know, all of a sudden, you inconvenienced me. You know how you shocked me? How dare you run outside of the home and all the, do you see this parable? It's like the, the guy runs, the shepherd goes, runs after the sheep. And what happens? My goodness, this, this shepherd must not be Asian because he celebrated and just like rejoiced. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I found you, puts the sheep over his shoulder and comes back to his flock. And what does he do? He throws a huge party, a huge party where all of his friends come and rejoices the fact that his sheep is found. And this is the nature of our God. Our God thinks you are precious. Our God thinks the one that we're thinking of that's outside of our church, that's far from God, is deeply, deeply precious to him. And so in verse 7, this is one thing that I saw this week. I was just floored by the beauty of it. In Luke 15, it says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. And this is what I just kind of thought through and meditated and discovered this week. You know, there's not very much descriptions about heaven in the Bible, and I've searched through them all. But here, once again, Jesus peels back the veil and shows us a little glimpse of what heaven is like. And he says, what heaven is like is this. There are lots of people who are righteous now. There are lots of people because they, they're wearing the robe of Jesus. They're, 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 they're completed. They're, they, they no longer need repentance. But for those people who find repentance, all of a sudden, heaven roars. They, it celebrates. People of God continue to celebrate the gospel grace of Jesus Christ. What that means is grace is more celebrated than even the law. And the righteousness, yeah, it's great. We're all together. But what is celebrated in the heavens is the glorious gospel. And when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, then we should be the same. We should continue to celebrate and long for and pursue those who need forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen? And this is why it is important that we are in this series. And last week, we asked, how can one be saved? Remember, it was rather quite theological. We're running through Romans chapter 1 to 3. And today, I want to aim not just your head, but really your heart. And we're answering the question, how can we be sent? How can we be sent? Okay, and if you are following with us, and if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, would you turn to Matthew chapter 13? Matthew chapter 13. And um, once again, I'll pray that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me. If you're able, would you please stand in all of our campuses in Hayward here online? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 13, starting verse 44. This is the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding that one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That is the word of the Lord for this great Sunday morning. All God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. With the remainder of time that we have together, I want to share with you three principles. And and I want to end with a couple applications that I think will hit all of us. First, if you're taking notes, as I inspire you and encourage you to do, first, gospel treasures are discovered by ordinary people. 
Gospel treasures are discovered by ordinary people. This treasure that's in the ground is a metaphor for the gospel. And, and, and the good news is it's revealed to ordinary people, not smart people, not people who are like really executing at a high level. No, ordinary people. And looking at the context of this passage, you might think, man, it's super unlikely that anybody would find a treasure in a field. And what I want to contest to is that not back then it wasn't, because you realize back then there were no such thing as banks, right? You couldn't deposit your money or your treasure or your gold or whatever. So what did you do? You buried it, but you didn't bury it in your house. Why? Because Palestine now, much like back then, was a war-torn country, and anybody could come, your enemies would come, and they would uh, ransack your house. And when they ransacked your house, they dug up everything in your house and would find your Uh, treasure. So what they would do is they would go off to an inconspicuous land or a land that you owned or a valley or near a mountain or river where there's like a tree and you can mark it. You would dig it up and bury your treasures there. And hopefully uh, you will outlast the war. Hopefully you will survive. But for those who didn't, uh, the, the fate of it is that the treasure remained there because nobody else knew about it. That's why archaeologists even today are not very surprised when they dig up treasures in these rich soil. And so now Farmer Fred goes down and, and down to town and buys that field joyfully, selling everything that he had. And he's the talk of the town, you know. Hey, did you know that Farmer Fred, he sold everything that he had, even that conversion van. Could you believe it? He sold everything and he's going to buy that field, that rocky field. That soil is terrible. You couldn't grow anything. You you couldn't even grow weeds. I know, he bought it. He's crazy, right? But Farmer Fred is laughing to the bank, right? Why? Because he knew something that nobody else did. He knew that in a very ordinary field, there was a billion dollar worth of treasure. And he went to the bank gladly. It says, for joy, sold everything that he had. You see, it's in the ordinary that Jesus buries his gospel treasures. And it is so counterintuitive in the world's instinct because you and I are trained to constantly look for the next superstar. Who's going to be the gospel courier of this generation? Oh, he must be charismatic. He must be an amazing communicator. He has to be smart. He has to be good looking. She has to be wonderful. She has to be gifted. And we think about all these, who are the next gifted people? And the Bible continues to remind us, no, it's always the ordinary. It's always the person that you would overlook, including Jesus, including Paul. Now, I'm not sure if you knew, but I am a proud dance dad. You know know what a dance dad is? It's it's the guy among a sea of women uh, that that love watching their daughters dance, man. I, I love, one of my favorite things to do is to watch my dad or just daughter just dance on the stage. And it's It's just, I find such joy and fulfillment there and excitement. I cheer for her like crazy. But one thing I do not get in the dancing world is the award ceremonies. Because you know, back then, the award ceremony is always like gold, silver, bronze, that's it. First, second, third place. Now there's like 50th place. (laughs) And like, we can't hurt anybody's feelings. So it's like, you got gold. I'm like, oh my gosh, you got gold. That's amazing. They're like, then you got platinum. Like what? Then, then there's Ruby. You're like, what? What's Ruby? They're like, then you get a diamond. <gasps> oh my gosh, congratulations, you got diamond. Then somebody else got double diamond. 
than sapphire, ruby, diamond, whatever it is. I'm like, man, I didn't grow up in the generation where, man, we're just, like, you know, we're just like watching out for everybody's feelings. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, in my generation, when I grew up, you know, if you won an award, you just had to not suck. <laughs> you actually had to win. You know, but nowadays we're so like, oh, let's not hurt anybody's feelings. And listen, when Jesus buries his treasure in ordinary fields, in ordinary people, he's not just like watching out for like your self-esteem. He's not interested in self-esteem. You know what he's really interested in? His glory. And what he does to raise up his glory is that he will use weak people to do amazing things. He will use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And if you feel rather ordinary today, thinking, well, I'm a nobody, you're in a great, great spot because I believe God wants to use you extraordinarily. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he says, for consider your calling. That's talking about all of us. Hayward, consider your calling. Brothers, sisters, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Praise God. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Praise God. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Praise God. Praise God. C.S. Lewis, in this great masterpiece, The Great Divorce, pushes and penetrates this point. Tells about a young man who dreams and actually goes to heaven, and he has a guide with him, and the guy's showing him everything around heaven. As he looks around, suddenly he looks around the corner, there's an enormous parade, a huge entourage of people, men and women, girls and boys dancing, scattering flowers all around this central figure, and this central figure is beautiful. She is radiant, and this young man is wondering, Oh my goodness, this central figure is majestic and glorious. And I read here, so he turns to his guide and says, is it, is it? Not at all, said the guide. He said, it, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. I said to my guide, well, well she seems to be, well, a person of great importance. Uh, yes, she was one of the great ones. Have you not heard? that fame up here and fame on earth are two different things? Well, who are all these young men and women around her? Oh, they are her sons and daughters, said the guide. Well, she must have had a very large family then. Well, every boy that met her became her son. Every girl became her daughter. She had no children of her own. Well, isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? I said to my guide. No, there are those who steal from other people's children, but her love was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more, and now the abundance of life that she has in Christ overflows into them. Already there's enough joy in her little finger to awaken all the dead things of the universe to life. Now here's the question. Who is Sarah Smith of Golders Green? Who is that? And C.S. Lewis's point is, She's a nobody, Sarah Smith, from a nowhere, Golders Green. She's just ordinary. But don't you know that God loves using the ordinary things to do extraordinary things? 
Do you not see that all of scriptures is that? That Jesus empowers us to do miraculous things, not for our glory, for his alone. That is the point. And so as we look at the next Billy Graham, we look for the next Matt Chandlers and Francis Chan, all the people that God wants to use in extraordinary ways, all the Sarah Greens, I mean Sarah Smiths of, of, of our world is buried under our noses. Don't you know that the people that heaven celebrates quite different than the people that earth is celebrating right now? And this is why God's mission always starts with ordinary people. Um, doing not in, from extraordinary, extraordinary places, but ordinary places, which becomes then an extraordinary movement. So if you feel a little ordinary today, you feel like you're graying a little bit, and you know what, like you're on a paleo diet, but yet your stomach is sticking out a little bit, and you feel like, oh man, I'm getting old, and my prime is behind me, you're in luck. You're in luck. God wants to use you to do something extraordinary here in Fremont, Hayward, Oakland, and all the Bay Area. Amen? Amen. All right, number two. The gospel treasures are revealed under an ordinary message. Under an ordinary message. Now, one of the reasons why um, everybody's laughing at Farmer Fred is because they cannot get over the idea that an ordinary field has a billion dollar buried in it because we think all the treasures are hidden in caves far, far away, you know, in some mountain somewhere under the depth of the sea. So we can't think like these treasures are so accessible to us. But now let's just look at the gospel message then. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you believe in him, by his grace alone, not by your works, you are saved for eternal life. And that's it. And non-Christians will look at that and be like, that's it? Man, that's the secret to life? Give me a break, you know? Uh, where's the spiritual, nine levels of spiritual consciousness that you have to dip into for all the rest of your life to know that you're finally approved by God, that you're moving up the ranks of these people that uh, that done really, really hard things, you know? Christianity can't be real. It's too simple. It's too inviting. It's too easy. And though many Christians will reject that, and we know that, but Christians also look beyond the obvious and the simple and know that the gospel, we have to know, is not just milk, but it's also the meat. And we preach this all the time here. For those of you who come and ask, you know, why don't we get to the meat of things and we talk about the gospel all the time? I'm like, what do you think you've been eating? In fact, that's, that's a, a narrative of my own life. I used to think that once. I used to think, let's get to the deep stuff. And that's why I studied Greek and Hebrew and went to seminary and got two master's degree from there. And I'm like, give me the deep stuff. Give me the meat. I want to dig for this treasure. Meanwhile, I was just walking by, right by the field. Right underneath me was the gospel that I passed by every single day until I met this man and I heard this preacher, an old preacher named Chuck Swindoll, who preached the message in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It reads like this. In the things that have now been announced to you, uh, through those who preach the good news to you, that's the gospel, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, look at the nature of the gospel, things into which angels long to look. And Pastor Chuck, his message was simply this. He's like, think about who the angels are. Angels are majestic beings. They've been around a long, long time, far longer than you. And angels have seen an intimate, um, they had a vantage point of seeing things that we don't get to see God do. And yet, of all the things that the angels have seen, they look at, 
the gospel and they're baffled by it. They can't take their eyes off it. They're just majestically in a trance by the beauty of it. And my question is, if the gospel is not doing that to you right now, what are you missing about the gospel? And this passage is telling us there's something so beautiful and majestic about the gospel that if you are not blown away by it, you're just walking right by side of it. The gospel is the answer to all of your problems, all of my insecurities, my pride, my guilt, my shame. And if your response to that is, man, what an overstatement that simply you do not understand the beauty of the gospel. And my encouragement to you today is keep digging. Keep looking around. Because once you get the gospel, you are completely revolutionized, which leads me to my third point. The gospel treasure is catalyzed by ordinary disciples. Catalyzed by ordinary, normal disciples. Again, the gospel treasure is found in ordinary people through an ordinary message. But here's the common denominator. Every single person that encounters this treasure has been transformed forever. I mean, consider these two people in the narrative. We see one who's a, like, kind of like a farmer who, who uh, most likely was poor. And here's the pearl merchant who was most likely rich. They're very different people. One, uh, he accidentally finds it. The other one is in pursuit of this and has found it. The one, uh, the, the land is sold and the person selling it has zero value. They, they don't understand the value of it. And the other one, the pearl merchant, the person who's selling it to the pearl merchant knows completely how much the value of that pearl is worth. Now, these two are completely different people and yet they only share one thing in common. And the one thing is, that once they find the value, once they find this treasure, their life is forever changed. Their life is completely dynamically changed forever. They're experiencing revolution in every part of their life. And we want that too. How could the gospel revolutionize us? You have to do three things. First, you must assess the gospel with your mind. You must assess the gospel with your mind. Now, you realize that both of these people saw the treasure, assessed the value, and they're both simply so blown away. And the reason why they're willing to liquidate everything, everything in their life for joy, with great joy, is because they absolutely are certain that they are getting more for what they're selling and what they're getting. They're absolutely convinced of that. And this is why Farmer Fred doesn't go to the real estate office and he's like, oh man, I'm just having buyer's remorse right now. I, I don't want to give up my, you know, sprinter van that I've been living in for the last 10 years. I, I don't want to give up my uh, winter vacation that is coming up during, uh, in December. No, he doesn't say, oh, a billion dollars is nice, but you know, my quarter though. Man, my grandpa gave it to me. No, he doesn't think that at all. And what would you say to a person like that who says that to you? Say, man, I don't want to buy this like, exclusive land that's worth billions of dollars that I could trade um, my $100 into. You'd be like, hey, bro, you need to think. You must just think. You must, you must engage your head. You must see the value of the gospel, and you must see the value of the life that you have here, and you have to make a choice. And this is exactly what Apostle Paul says. He says, your life is like a ledger book. And if you want to know how valuable a company is, you have to see what their profit is and what their losses or their expense is. 
And this is what Paul says, you must do with your life. He says, I consider my sufferings at this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. He says, consider. He says, calculate and reflect. And Paul says, I could handle uh, the sufferings in my life this side of earth because I know something else is coming. And so he says, look at your P&L statements of your life. There are losses for the sake of the gospel. We know that because Jesus specifically says to us, pick up your cross and follow me. It's going to take death. But he says also, look at your profit. Look at your peace. It's going to be a great gain. And this is why in the first century, Christians went to the lions singing, persecuted. This is why they entered into Rome in front of sick people that they could have been uh, diseased and they could have died with these diseases. They fed the poor radically. And you know the kind of people that live like that? I'll tell you who are the people who know that this world is all but a waiting room, waiting for another room to come. That room is eternal life with the presence of God forever and evermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is an afterlife? Do you believe that eternal life is coming? Do you believe that that's available for those who found the gospel? Then my question, if you believe it, is that what's the incongruency here? Why do you live so closed here? Why do you live as if this world is all there is? Think, think, assess the value. I don't think there's a person in this room or a person in this world that will meet Jesus and say, darn it, I should have given less on earth. Not a single person. In fact, all the regrets should have been, my goodness, I should have given everything, everything. Here's the second thing. Assess the gospel with your heart, not just your mind, but with your heart. The farmer and the merchant are simply overwhelmed emotionally, right? And they are filled with joy. Because not only do they know that they're rich, but they actually feel their wealth. They feel it in their hearts. Oh, my, my seminary roommate adopted a child from Russia. About 15 years ago, I remember him journeying to do this. He had about $50,000 in his savings. He'd been aggressively saving. And, you know, to adopt a child from Russia, I don't think you could do it now, but it, back then it cost about $50,000. And so he's willing to make the investment. So he goes to Russia several times and goes to this ratty orphanage uh, off the town of St. Petersburg. It's just like a little rural area. He goes into this orphanage, like these concrete walls and just all these kids playing outside on dirt. They have dirt on their face, not smeared all over their nose. Their clothes are just all torn up. And in and, and the orphanage, um, the director says, that's Connor right there, that's Connor. And he looks, that's Connor. And the Connor makes eye contact with him. And so my friend kneels, Drew, and he sticks out his hand to get a little high five. And here comes Connor. And he denies his high five and comes and just wraps his arm around him and says, Papa. And there at that moment, Drew said, I'm not leaving this country without you. I'm not leaving. If I have to wipe and clean toilets for the rest of my life, I'll do it. Because you are with it. You are with it. Now, do you know that this is the picture 
of the gospel, that we were all fatherless, that we were all in this orphanage called earth, and we had sin smeared all over our face and everywhere. We weren't, willing, we weren't beautiful. We weren't worthy to be received by the Father, but the Father came and said, I'm your dad and I will take you in, and I will make a covenant with you that you cannot separate my love from me ever, and you'll be my forever son, my forever daughter. In, in doing so, I will sacrifice my own son. The creator of the world was able to bypass his treasure and call you his treasure. This is what he wants. And if that doesn't melt your heart, you kind of haven't seen the gospel yet. And so I would say, think about the gospel Feel the gospel in its richness. And lastly, assess the gospel through your life. Not just your head, not with your, just your heart, but with your life. And we see this in Farmer Fred and the merchant. They didn't have to sell everything, but they got to sell everything. And when we assess the value of the gospel with our minds and our hearts, something revolutionary happens. Our have-tos become our get-tos. Our, our disciplines turn into our delights. Our job becomes our joy. That's what happened. Yet, yet some of us, I'll tell you what some of us are doing. We're trying to milk both worlds. We're trying to get everything from this world while still somehow maintaining connection to the next. We're like, man, I just want. And for those people whose minds are fixed on that, I, I just want to present to you, you probably have not seen the gospel. You probably earthed something that smells like the gospel, almost tastes like the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's not truffles. It's just truffle oil. You know, you, you, think, you, you think it is, but because once you find the real gospel, you'll trade everything in your life. What is something that you have in this life that's greater than the promise that is to come? You have to think. You have to feel. And this is why Bill Hull says... The great disciple guru, he says this, American churches are filled with pew-filling, sermon-tasting, spiritual schizophrenics whose belief and behavior is not congruent. Do you see that? Ouch. Is your belief and your life congruent or is it incongruent? Is it different? Is it something that you can't even notice that you, that, that you value the gospel. And if you have different values and it's incongruent, perhaps the gospel is not your treasure yet. Because listen, nobody looks at a $100 bill and refuses to trade it for their dime. In the same way, nobody ever looked deeply into Jesus Christ, his love, his sacrifice, and responded just moderately to him. There's nobody. So if you feel like you're living a moderate Christian life, perhaps you have not found the gospel treasure. This, my brothers and sisters, is all of the Bible. Ordinary people, ordinary message, doing revolutionary things because they assess the gospel with their minds and their hearts and their life and they're living according to it. Could I show you just in the next few minutes how church history works, how accessible and how good news this is to us? I'll turn to Book of Acts. Do you know in the beginning of the book of Acts, there are 120 people, 120 people only who are Christians. And you know at the end of the book of Acts, which is Acts 28, do you know how many Christians there were? There are 50,000. Wow, that's 400 times more Christians revolutionizing a region, and they're about to explode into the world. You're like, how did they get there? 
Oh, it must have been leaders like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Peter, John, right? No, the entire book is not about these gifted leaders. The entire book is rather being mobilized. Who's being mobilized? Unnamed people. Let me show you. First, Acts 4.13, this is what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, these are the crowds that perceived that they were uneducated and common men. Hold on to that, uneducated common. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do you see what it says here when it says uneducated and common men? Luke actually translates that Greek word as illiterate ignoramuses. Now, that should comfort us. Why? Because at least we're not illiterate. As long as you know how to read, guess what? You are one leg up, Peter and John. That's good. That's good news that God can use you. He used them. He could use you. Now, Acts in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is right after Stephen. You remember in Acts chapter 6, he was stoned, the martyr, and Saul stood there, who would eventually become Paul, and he approved the execution. Look at what happens. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Everybody scattered, all the Christians, except the apostles. The apostles stayed. Verse 4, four goes on to say, Now those who were scattered to Judea and Samaria went about preaching the word. Now, class, who went and scattered and preached the word? Who? The people. The believers, it wasn't Peter. All, it wasn't the apostles. Everybody but the apostles went out and shared the word, preached the word. It was ordinary people scattered preaching the gospel. Verse, uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered, we're talking about average, normal Christians again, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, check them out, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the Greeks also, the non-Jews also, preaching the word Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you see this? Ordinary people scattered into the world, sharing the gospel, and the gospel is like just taking, it was just taking great force, great momentum through ordinary people. And listen, we are watching here in this moment a, a birth of churches because Antioch was the church of the nations. From Antioch was the church where church planting started. Now here's the question, who was the pastor at Antioch? Must have been Peter, must have been John, must have been Paul. No, according to this verse, it says it was men of Cyrene. Who, who are they? They're unnamed men. Why are they unnamed? Why aren't they prominent? Why? Because God continues to use ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things. Lastly, look at Acts 19. When Paul was at Ephesus, he stayed there for a couple of years. Like he wasn't traveling around. He stayed in Ephesus at a hall of Tyrannus. Hall of Tyrannus, think about it as like a seminary. Okay, he was teaching there. And it goes on and says, this continued for two years, Paul preaching, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Do you see this? 
all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Man, if you are from an Asian descent, this passage in Acts 19 should be good, good news to you. Now, the question is, how did Asia hear the word of the Lord? Was it Paul? No, Paul stayed in Ephesus teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. Then who went? Those people who heard Paul and learned from Paul. The normal, ordinary people going out all throughout Asia. And this is all of Asia heard the gospel. Amazing. And so in three, I mean, 635 AD, we find historically the first time we see the gospel penetrated China. In 1200 AD, the Bible became available in 22 different languages. In the 1500s, in the middle 1500s, the Northern Europeans came to a new frontier called the Americas. And they landed in a city called St. Augustine, which is in Florida, and they moved their way up preaching this gospel of grace to every person. And 500 years after that, in a little town called Fremont, which nobody knows, most people spell it with two E's, <laughs> planted Resonate Church 500 years after that, 13 years ago, with 30 people in a small living room in the house that I still live in. I still remember one of the pastors looked at our core group of people that gathered and they said, this church will never succeed. I'm like, why? Because they're too average. They're too ordinary. Well, here's the good news. God uses the ordinary. God uses ordinary people. God uses an ordinary message. And God wants to unleash us into the world to do something extraordinary. And so I, I want you to capture this. I said three things. Number one, the gospel is passed down from generation to generations. Every generation had to be faithful. For some of you who say, well, I don't want to share the gospel. Who's going to share the gospel? Oh, the next generation. It'll be too late. There won't be a next generation unless we invest in them right now. And secondly, it's by ordinary people. If you're in this room saying, man, I, I'm just an ordinary person, perfect. We don't need superstars. I'm not sure if you've heard, but there's some, like, some famous person that came through like a month ago to our church, one of the services, you know, super famous. Everybody loves him, part of the 49ers. They're like, ooh, this person. Man, I, I don't want... I want our church to be filled with just ordinary people. Why? Because I believe God wants his glory. And I believe God gets his glory most by using ordinary people that we would never suspect doing anything miraculous because it would be for sure. It would be, it, be, be grounded assurance in knowing it wasn't us that did it, but it was God who empowered us to do something amazing. So here's two applications. Listen, like ordinary people, right, from generations to gener generations saying, this is worth it. I want to spend my life like this. I want to spend my life like this. Do you know what we call that at Resonate Church? We call it discipleship. That's it. We call it discipleship. And so here's two applications as you go. Here's the first one. For every single person who is listening to this, I believe if you're here in this room right now, and by the way, rest assured, the Niners are winning, so don't worry about it. Okay, just like literally rest, okay? I want you to hear this. I believe God wants you to be an ordinary disciple. 
And the best way you could do that is just say yes today to MCs. We have a missional community expo going on today. And if you are not in a missional community today, man, I want to just challenge you as this is a personal invitation to you. Especially for those of you who said, oh, I'll do it next season, next season, next season, and have set that for seven seasons. I'll do it when, you know, my kids go off to college. I'll do it if, like, this happens or that happens. When I get that new job, I don't think that's what the Lord wants. I think what the Lord really wants is to say, you have the treasure. Live according to it. And what that means is he wants to use you your ordinary self through this ordinary message to reach the world. And the best way you do that is to be prepared, trained, live in a community through MCs. If you're not part of an MC today, could I just encourage you and challenge you? I think God's talking to you. Will you go out there and sign up for one? And man, I would even extend this kind of grace. Just sign up for one. If you don't want to attend one, fine. Just say, hey, pastor said, you know, I could just sign up for one. Man, I just want to do the hard work to sign up for one. I remember a friend of mine, when I did not work out and I hated exercise and I wasn't doing a darn thing, a good friend of mine from Resonate said, hey, hey, just come to the gym with me. Just come. You don't have to work out. I'm like, I don't have to work out. Just come to the gym. He said, yes, just come to the gym and just sit there if you want. Don't do anything. Oh, man, he tricked me. <laughs> because guess what? I showed up to the gym and I worked out. How glorious that has changed my life in so many ways, physically and mentally. And so I want to encourage you, hey, just really sign up. Just sign up for one. And don't show up. You could try. <laughs> Second, Second could, you, could you grab one of these under your seats? Would you grab this? This is for the one. And my ask of you is that you would write down the name of the very one that you believe God is calling you to share the gospel with, to reach and to invite to church. You could write their names up here. We're going to post that portion up into the skies of, you know, both campuses in Hayward, in Fremont. You could do that online with our online host. And on the bottom is just like you could tear a tab out and you could keep the bottom for yourself. And the top one is you leave. We, we want you to deposit it so that we can continue to pray for your one. And so I want to give you a moment this is what we're going to do in all of our campuses, a moment where we put that name down, family member, mother, father, brother, sister, coworker, relative, wherever it is. We're going to write that name down. We're going to pray together. Once you wrote your name down, will you stand from your seat? And as you stand, would you just cry out to the Lord? Cry out, Hosanna. You are the God who saves, and we're going to pray for them. So go ahead. Take a moment. Right now, in all of our services, write your name and then go ahead and stand where you are and pray for your one. And if you're done, would you just stand from your seat? Yeah. Keep the paper close to you. Keep it close to your chest. Let God know that you're pleading for them. And let, let God know that they're not, it's not going to be long until you go after the one. That they're not going to be alone. That they're precious to God is His. We're coming soon.
oh, how we long for that person to come, to resonate, to taste the glorious gospel that's so beneath their feet. When you're, when you're ready, and just keep praying for that person. Would you stand from your seat? Keep the bottom half of the sheet for yourself. Keep the top half and submit it as we go outside. Let me pray. Father, the person that we wrote on our sheet, we know that they belong to you. They are precious to you. As much as we long for them and want them to see your face, you want it more. Thank you, Father, for leading us and choosing us. We're so ordinary. Many of us don't believe in ourselves, but you do. So I pray that you would use every single person here, that every single person would choose to be a disciple and be a part of an MC, and every single person, whoever they wrote down, that you would affirm in us that you have given us the authority, that you have given us the permission, that you have given us the, the gifts that are necessary, the opportunity to share with them the gospel that they do not know. And we, one day we'll pray, we'll pray, we'll continue to pray that these people will come to know the saving grace of yourself, Jesus. That is our prayer today. We pray in the matchless name of our King and our Savior, our Hosanna, the God who saves, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's give praise to the one. Amen. We're going to continue to sing.